Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Jessica Knoll. We are here every week covering a new case and a new story. And Jessica, this one is a personal story for you because before joining us at Vault Studios, you were investigating this case just a year ago, correct? Right, Spencer. So I investigated uh, Debbie Lynn Randall's case out of Georgia when I was working as an investigative reporter at WXIA. And Jessica, where's this story taking place? This story is out of Marietta, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. All right, let's get into the case of Debbie Lynn Randall. I loved her. I still love her today. I don't have her, but I still love her today. And she is my baby. Debbie Lynn Randall is nine years old. She loves playing with her dolls. She's known as the queen of her neighborhood baseball team. Her story begins on the evening of January 13th, 1972. It's an unseasonably warm winter day, and she wants to go outside. But her brothers want to stay inside and watch TV. Their mother, Juanita Hooker, asks her husband, Frank, to take Debbie Lynn and a few loads of laundry to the laundromat. Debbie Lynn slips on her favorite new lavender shoes with red and white beads. Debbie lived at 727 1st Street, apartment 2. It was a housing complex, was over off South Loop. It's no longer there. Uh, But back in the day, it was a uh, low-income, middle-income housing area. That's Detective Morris Nix. He knows her case well, but more about him later. At about 7 o'clock... Debbie Lynn and her stepfather leave their apartment and walk across the street to Duds and Suds laundromat. Frank throws a few loads into the wash and gives Debbie Lynn some change for the dryers. He leaves her at the laundromat and returns to the apartment. And again, it was directly across the street. Because a lot of people say, well, how could you let a nine-year-old go off by herself? But you got to remember, it was a lot different in 1972. And it was, I think, I think it was like 57 feet from her front door to the laundromat. The girls would meet there. They would play Barbie dolls and they would change doll clothes. Debbie Lynn doesn't have her dolls to play with this time, so she picks up the laundry detergent and pushes open the front door about 15 minutes later. But she doesn't return home. As night begins to fall, her family begins looking for her. It's just after 7.30. Juanita and Frank find a spilled box of detergent next to a Volkswagen just outside the laundromat. Two hours later, Juanita reports her daughter missing to police. Officers find tiny fingerprints on the Volkswagen door at a downward angle. And Debbie Lynn Randall is gone. But there's a witness, someone who saw her. Her name is Sandra Moody. She was 12 years old at the time. Sandra remembers a sunny, blue sky that day. The strawberry blonde is helping her friend carry a bulky sheet full of laundry down the hill 
to Duds and Suds when she sees Debbie Lynn. I looked up and I said, stood there and looked for a minute and I said, did you see that? I said, that man just grabbed that kid. And she said, no, I didn't see it. I said, and my thought was, well, somebody's getting in a lot of trouble, but I didn't realize what I was seeing, you know. A dark-haired man wearing a white T-shirt, blue jeans, and dark work boots snatches Debbie Lynn like a ragdoll off the sidewalk and throws her over his shoulder as Sandra watches in horror. She was kicking and hitting her hands in the front. I could see her hitting her hands and her feet in the back, trying, you know, kicking. He rushes her to his black pickup truck, the engine still running. He throws the door open and hastily shoves a young girl inside. And as his truck races down the road, Sandra makes bone-chilling eye contact with the driver in his rearview mirror. I told him, screamed at him and said, you need to slow down, there's kids out here playing. Now 58, Sandra is haunted by what she witnessed that winter day in 1972. I kept thinking that if it had been five minutes, if I'd have been even two minutes earlier, I could have stopped it. And that's the way I felt, and that's the way I've always felt, because I was so mean. I mean, I really was mean. Not to the part where I was a bully to other people, but I did not allow anybody to pick on anybody or hurt anybody. You know, that was just me. I grew up in the country, and that's the way it was. If, if you saw somebody in trouble, you helped them, you know. And that's the way I was. And so it's really been a... I mean, I've carried it, I've carried it all these years. Tears fall down her cheeks. She brushes them away with both hands before they can settle deeply within her weathered face. She's plagued with guilt. I could have stopped it. I would have stopped it. Even if I had took her place, I would have stopped it. While she didn't know Debbie Lynn personally, a part of her has always stuck with her. And this whole day has been like embedded in my head, you know. It had a big effect on me, more of an effect than I realized, you know, but because I'm, I've never forgot it. A gentle wind turns to a driving rain as Sandra tells me how she replays that day over and over in her mind every time she closes her eyes. I see her getting kidnapped. And it's like in the dreams, I want to chase the truck, you know. I want to chase it. I want to stop it, jump on the truck, you know. Based on witness statements like Sandra's, Police start searching for a suspect and for Debbie Lynn. Her brothers put up missing flyers on every city telephone pole and business window. Everyone's on the hunt for the young girl. And on a chilly, rainy day, 16 days after she disappears, thousands in a search party comb through a heavily wooded area. Four and a half hours into their search, a man discovers drag marks dug into the wet ground. Her body was discovered by Mike McMahon. And he was a student at Southern Tech. And a group of students had agreed to search, and they were that's the area that they were assigned to. And Mike said that um, he had just gotten back from Vietnam, had seen a lot of combat in Vietnam. And he said when he went there, he noticed there appeared to be drag marks. And so he followed the drag mark down there, he spotted Debbie's body, and he stopped. He didn't go all the way down to the body. And um, that's how she was found. 
Her lifeless body is fully clothed, wearing a long-sleeved lavender dress with small yellow flowers and tiny green leaves, and a dark blue hooded coat zipped all the way up to her chin. She's wearing bobby socks, but her favorite lavender Christmas shoes are missing. She's been suffocated with her own coat. Investigators believe the man covered her face, possibly to muffle her screams. She's missing an ear and has been violently raped. Dark brown hair is found on her body and is tested. It's from a white male, approximately 18 to 30 years old, and maybe dark-complected. I think there's a really good chance that um, possibly they, Debbie knew her abductor. And um, had another witness tell me that she saw Debbie leave the laundromat, walk out the door, and she went back in. She was gonna go with Debbie to play dolls. And her older sister said, no, you're not going anywhere. You're gonna help me fold clothes. So she went back inside and she believed that this person called out to Debbie and Debbie went to the truck. Dirt found on her clothing is also studied. There's two types, North Georgia clay and clay from Dixie Cast and Stone Company, just about three miles from where Debbie Lynn's body was found and not far from where she was abducted, giving investigators a third crime scene. She was taken about a quarter mile down the road. And then we can only speculate at this point. Uh, I don't know if he realized that she wasn't dead, and so he stopped the truck. Or um, that's just where he decided to drop her. I've always wondered if he was headed to the river, the Chattahoochee River, which would have been straight ahead, not far. We just don't know. We can only speculate. Uh, my prayer is that she was dead and that uh, that was over for her. But um, it was just a very heinous crime. Eventually, her case goes cold, but her case file finds its way onto a semi-retired detective's desk decades later. I think of Debbie every day, and um, <clears throat> she deserved justice. I mean, it's really just that simple. Cobb County Code Case Unit Investigator Morris Nix was 19 years old when Debbie Lynn's face flashes on his TV screen. I came in the house, it was on the news, and my mom was wringing her hands and um, I could tell something was really wrong. And I said, you know, what happened? What's wrong? And um, she started giving me a little bit of the details. And I could look and tell it, it really frightened her because that was not something we were used to at that time. It crossed every line within this city. Uh, people were afraid. They were angry. And um, it was frightening because at that time in 1972, we were still a bedroom community to the city of Atlanta. I sit down with Debbie Lynn's father, John Randall, in his Austell, Georgia home. The Korean veteran is 82 years old now and makes his way around the house slowly with a walker. His worn hands pull out a stack of memories from a small wooden box, his daughter's third grade school photo, and numerous yellowed newspaper clips. It's also where he keeps his Bible. His hands shake as he begins to unfold the brittle clippings that he has read countless times over the years, looking for clues someone missed. They chronicle the search for his missing daughter and then her homicide in 1972, 
when he was just a 36-year-old father of three. He was working his shift at Ford Motor Company when he got the call. To lose your child and then in that way and be at work on the line and have somebody come down and say, you, got, you need to call home. And that's all the words they told me. It was just like losing part of my, I mean me, was being gone. It was gone. And it ain't never come back. It never will come back. It's a lonely world when you lose somebody like that that you love and they love for 10 years and then lose them. He proudly holds up a gold picture frame with his three children smiling back at him. The middle photo is Debbie Lynn's third grade school photo. Freckles dance across her nose, leaving a trail from cheek to cheek. Her shoulder-length brown hair is pulled back with a floppy yellow bow, showing her green eyes and timid smile. Time has faded that picture, but her smiling face plastered throughout Cobb County in 1972 on missing posters is etched into the community's memory, especially her father's. Yeah, I love you. I've done the best I could raising you. I know I wasn't the best father in the world. I tried to raise you right, and you minded most of the time, but you were a good kid, and I love you. He gathers the photos and clips one by one, looking at each again as he tucks them neatly back into the box, maybe for another five decades without answers. I don't know that I'll ever find out. Long as it's been, but I still have a hope in my heart for a person that done it. I would like to believe that he was already dead, but I'd like to believe that he could suffer for the rest of his life. I mean, I would love for him to suffer. I know he made her suffer. He believes that it was someone who knew Debbie Lynn, and he prays that someone who knows will come forward. They're not sorry that they done it or they would have already come forward. Debbie Lynn should be 57 years old. And for her family, there's not a year, not a day that passes that she isn't in their thoughts, missing her. Her mom, Juanita, was 31 when her only daughter vanished. Soon after, she left Marietta and made her home in Alabama. Each word is a struggle as she coughs between sobs. She was my baby. The 78-year-old battling leukemia takes a long pause to breathe between thoughts. And I loved her so much. I couldn't understand why it was her instead of me. Detective Nix wants to give Debbie Lynn's family those answers. I don't know that I'll ever look at a Barbie doll again that I don't think about her. When Debbie took her last breath, she was looking into the face of a monster. And her monster remains elusive. But Nix is determined to reveal his identity 47 years later. For three years, he's been relentless in his pursuit to solve her cold case. I still think that it's possible to solve this case. It's going to take, I guess you'd call it a miracle, it's going to take a huge break. But we've come a long way from where we were. And I do think we have a chance to do this. Nix pulls a tan cardboard box over to him on the conference table inside the Cobb County Cold Case Unit's office. In bold black letters on the side in a black square labeled destroy is the handwritten word never. It's Debbie Lynn's case file and entails every gruesome detail of her rape and killing. The assault upon Debbie was brutal. 
It was vicious. It was inhumane. The medical examiner told us uh, the cause of death is strangulation, but the medical examiner told us that she probably would have bled to death anyway. The retired non-volunteer detective begins pulling the box's contents out, including a slim file folder with a black and white photocopy of her school photo paper clipped to the inside cover, reminding him each time he opens the file who he's fighting for. When I first got this, first thing I thought when I looked at it, I thought, wow, there's not much here. Yeah. Uh, usually a homicide investigation would be a lot more than this, but uh, I immediately thought, man, there's not much here. Nix believes Debbie Lynn knew her attacker, but he needs proof. DNA, something that wasn't available when she was killed, is going to be the one thing that can ID the man Nix calls her monster. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. In 2016, Nix gets a DNA profile from the evidence still in her case file. That information indicates only one perpetrator assaulted Debbie Lynn. Because of that, he's been able to eliminate quite a few persons of interest from his radar. And in May 2018, Nix believes he might have the monster. But a run through the national database, CODIS, proves that the DNA doesn't match any known offenders within the system. But he was able to eliminate some suspects along the way. He plans on retracing similar assault patterns and arrests between 1973 and 1974 throughout the entire Southeast, hoping to match crimes to Debbie Lynn's case. People die, records are missing, and it's difficult, but we did get a DNA profile. So if we can ever match it with someone, game over. There is the possibility that the suspect was never arrested for another crime or didn't commit a crime after DNA testing was possible and therefore wouldn't be in CODIS, a tracking system that wasn't a nationwide database until 1994. I think it's very possible he was never arrested or that he took a break for whatever reason, perhaps went years. Um, This type of injuries that were inflicted, I have wondered, was this rage? Um, What would set someone off to do this? So I don't know if it's part of his perversion or if he was enraged over something, but uh, it was a brutal assault. Nix believes that his suspect is low to low middle income and was likely a construction worker or worked at Dixie Cast and Stone based on the truck he drove and because of the dirt samples found on Debbie Lynn's clothing. I spoke to um, the owner of Dixie Cast and Stone and he told me back in the day, he said, that would have been the perfect place. He said, you could have taken her back there around the sand pits and nobody would have ever heard her. Nix knows her case and the route to her grave, like the back of his hand. He visits her often, promising her that one day he will find her killer. And 
when my time comes to end it, I'm gonna pass it on to somebody else. So for me personally, it's not about an arrest, not about a conviction. It's about closure for their family. Debbie's case was not just a molestation, an assault case. Whoever was involved in this is a psychopath. A lot of people have said to me over the years, why don't you let it go? Um, there's newer other cases that we can work on, but I, don't, I just don't want to let it go till, till I know that we're to the end of the road and we're not to the end of the road. So for this story, uh, Spencer and Will, we do have uh, a sad update to bring. Um, Juanita, Debbie Lynn Randall's mother, did pass away before she was able to get any answers. But Detective Nix helped raise money so that she could have one of her dying wishes, which was to be buried next to her daughter. And Jessica, there is a pretty unique uh, cold case group that is helping with this case. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, the Cobb County Cold Case Unit is an all-volunteer unit um, based in Cobb County, Georgia. It's full of retired detectives who've come back and are looking through all these cold cases. And what's interesting is that they're an all-volunteer group as well. So they're doing this on their own time to look into these cases and try to and get some answers for some. And they have solved some cases. All right, and one more note. There is actually uh, a graphic novel that folks can find online to, to learn more about the story, right? Right. When we originally did this story at WXIA, we accompanied it with a graphic novel. Um, it is called The Doll and the Monster. And if you go to WXIA.com backslash doll and monster, you can read the full story and you can also flip through the graphic novel that we did. All right, Jessica, thanks again. And if anyone has any information they think might be relevant to this case, they can contact the Cobb County Cold Case Unit. It's in Cobb County, Georgia. Uh, Jessica, people can learn more about Vault Studios on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, where else on Facebook? We have a Facebook group called Inside the Crime Vault where we discuss this and, and many other cases that we're looking at. All right, thanks to Jessica and Spencer, and we will be back next week with a new case and a new story. 